Well, we are going to continue our study in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. And uh, we left off last time, the first part of verse 18. And the message was entitled, Rooted and Grounded in Love. And so we're going to pick up in verse 18, the second half. Um, In these verses, Paul continues his prayer. Remember, we're in a prayer from verse 14 down to 21. He continues his prayer, praying that these precious saints would know that they are rooted and grounded in the love of God. And now in the second half of verse 18, he wants them to know and understand just how vast and how great, how infinite the love of God is. And this is the love they're rooted in, rooted and grounded in. And when I keep referencing the Ephesian saints, of course, the letter is for all saints, all the believers for all time. And last time, again, we looked at this prayer of Paul's. We specifically directed our attention on verse, the first part of, or the last part of 17, first part of 18. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. We spent some time looking at this phrase, rooted and grounded, and observed that Paul's prayer for these saints was that they would remember that it was God himself who planted them, right? who rooted them in his love, that they might be able with all the saints to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. In the first uh, chapter of Ephesians, in verse 6, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You know, in those verses, God is the star of the show. It's what he did. And Paul's praying that these dear believers would know that God has given them his love. In love he predestined us. God has given us his love, given every believer his love. And that they are rooted and grounded in this love which originates from God, not from man. Remember last time the quote, it takes love to know love. God has given his people his love so they can know his love. They can know the love of Christ. Paul is praying that not only these dear saints, but all the saints for all time will grow in the knowledge of this truth convinced that they are, in fact, rooted and grounded in the love of God. What a wonderful prayer. It's a great example of a prayer. This is a prayer we should be praying not only for ourselves, but for each other, right? This wonderful prayer that they would grow in this knowledge, grow in this wonderful truth being convinced, confident that they are rooted and grounded in love, the love of God through Jesus Christ. 
So Paul presupposes that these Ephesian saints are rooted in God's love because they've been rooted in Christ. We talked about that last time. Ultimately, it is the root of the love of God that supports the tree, right? Supplies the tree, sustains the tree. Christ is the root. Yeah, last time we talked about from Isaiah 61 being oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, right? The root is Christ himself supporting these trees of righteousness. Sustaining, or supplying and sustaining. And as a result of being rooted and supported, supplied and sustained in the root and by the root, these oaks of righteousness, they're green, healthy, Vibrant, lush, fruitful, all for the glory of God. Psalm 92, which was our corporate reading last week, and for some reason I missed this in the last message, but you're going to get it this morning. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. Because, again, to, because the tree is supported supplied and sustained by the root. And last week we talked about Christ being the root of Jesse. Listen to what the psalmist says. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our, of our God. They will still yield fruit in, or, in old age. That's encouraging. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That fruit is the fruit to be expected from a healthy tree of righteousness. That proclamation, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There's no unrighteousness in him. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, Isaiah writes this, Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. And then the voice changes. Listen to the second part of the verse. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. You know, God's work always brings glory to him, right? He, he, whatever he does, he does for his glory. So to take a little stock in what we're doing, you can ask yourself a question. Is this for the glory of God? Or is this for my glory? Or some other glory? So this brings us to our text this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as I read the verses. Another thing to be thankful for, you don't have to stand through the whole intro. I'm going to read from verse 14 through 21 for context. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love <clears throat> may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, remember the saying, it takes love to know love. <clears throat> I mean, Paul knows that it requires a person to have the love of God in order for that person to be able to understand, to grasp, to realize, to begin to comprehend the vast, unmeasured, boundless dimensions of the love of God. And to know the love of Christ, which is far beyond any human ability or human capacity to know if left to oneself. Paul prays that these dear saints may be able to comprehend. We talked <clears throat> a little bit last week about this, but the Greek phrase for may be able carries the meaning to have full strength, to be entirely competent, to be eminently able, which points us back to verse 16 of chapter 3, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The spirit of God is the source and power of the believer's ability to comprehend the richness of God's love. We cannot do that on our own. It's the work of God's spirit. And God gives his Holy Spirit to those whom he loves. Which is why Paul prays to God on their behalf. He assumes that the Holy Spirit resides in the hearts of these Christians because they have the love of God. They have the Spirit of God. That's true of us this morning if you're a Christian. Listen to what Paul says with his understanding that it requires the Spirit of God to reveal the love of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, if you want to follow along. Paul says, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. In verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Makes sense? God has to reveal himself. And he does. He does. And just by way of review, the word comprehend, katalambano, I think, in the Greek, close. But it means to take eagerly, to seize, to lay hold of, comprehend, to make one's own, to obtain, to take into oneself, to appropriate. Paul is praying, well, to take possession of Christ by his holy power and influence, laying hold of the human mind and will in order to prompt and govern it. It's a great definition, clear definition. Comprehend. Paul's praying that all believers in Christ will literally apprehend, seize, in the sense of mentally grasping this most glorious, magnificent, transcendent truth of the infinite love of God which knows no limits nor has any boundaries. And we remember from last time that Paul, when he prays in this prayer, he's praying for all the saints for all time. He says, with all the saints. With all the saints. His prayer is not intended for just a select few of the superior saints. No, his prayer is for all saints, for all who are in Christ Jesus, that they might be able to comprehend, apprehend, to possess the love of God, which is for every true believer, for all time and eternity, who are rooted and grounded in love. All who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let's take a little closer look at the end of verse 18, where Paul prays what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And we've already said the knowledge of the love of God is far beyond human knowledge, far beyond human ability or capability, far beyond human talent, I said this last week, power or skill, to even begin to approach this glorious transcendent knowledge apart from being rooted and grounded in love, the love of God. I don't have this in my notes, but I think of extreme measures that man has taken to find God sitting on top of a mountain sitting on top of a pole, you know, um, asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, whipping themselves to find God. I mean, if you look down through history, it would amaze us if I could enumerate for you this morning all the crazy effort to know God by, you know, man's effort. Yeah, here in the latter part of verse 18, Paul uses, he uses language of dimension. He, in a masterful way, uses words that draws in his reader's imagination. 
Paul is causing his reader to ask a question. How big is God's love? It seems that he anticipates their curiosity, to me, that he understands their wonder. It's as though Paul realizes, even before they do, what they really want to know about the love of God. For instance, how broad is it? What's the duration of God's love? How glorious is it? How exalted is it? How far-reaching? How deep does it go? Of course, this is a question that will receive its answer throughout eternity, right? But here, Paul is wanting to give a sense of the vastness of God's love toward his saints. So he uses words that will engage the minds, engage the imagination of his readers. I'd like to read for you just a section from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones out of his commentary on this verse. Quote, We are about to look into something which is so glorious and endless that it will be the theme of contemplation of all the saints, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. We shall spend our eternity gazing upon it and wondering at it and being astounded by it. But it is our business to start upon this here and now in this life. It has ever been one of the characteristics of the greatest saints that they have spent much time in meditating on the love of Christ to themselves and to all God's people. Nothing has given them greater joy. Indeed, this is a characteristic of love at all levels. It delights in thinking not only of the object of its love, but also of the love it receives. Nothing, therefore, should give greater joy to all God's people than to meditate upon this love of Christ. Indeed, our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to realize Christ's love to us, unquote. He goes on to say, well, first, he asks a question. How often have you thought about this? That's probing. Then he goes on to say, quote, we spend time thinking about our activities and our problems, but the most important necessity in the Christian life is to know Christ's love to us and to meditate upon it. This has always been the spring and source of the greatest activity that has ever been manifested in the long history of the Christian church, unquote. So, Let's think along with the Apostle Paul as we consider these dimensions of God's love. We'll begin with the breadth, the the width of his love. Have you ever stopped to consider just how wide and broad, how spread out the love of God is? In regard to the breadth of God's love, there are no boundaries. God's love spreads out to every 
people group on the planet. Talk about a CRT. Let me read to you God's answer on critical race theory. In fact, turn there with me if you would. Revelation chapter 5. Left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, to our human thinking, we are goofy. We're just, we don't think reasonably left to ourselves. But with sanctified thinking, it's a different story, right? Okay, Revelation 5, verse 7. And he came and took the book out of that right hand of him who sat on the throne. Yahweh. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. We know who that is. That's right. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Is anyone left out? I don't see anyone left out. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The breadth of the love of God. Revelation chapter 7, turn a page. Verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Do you hear any disagreement going on? Are they all of the same mind and heart? Yes, all of mankind, all the angelic hosts, all the host of heaven agreed. Paul says this in Colossians 3, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So, the breadth of God's love. There's no confusion about that. The world's confused, I get that. But not the church. Not the church. There's no confusion from the scripture. But there is confusion when the church begins to turn down the volume on the word of God and crank up the volume on man's voice. God, help us not to do that. 
each one of us. <laughs> Nothing is more encouraging, more hopeful, than to remember in, this, in these times of division and separation and really hate, we see it, that there are those who belong to God in every country, on every continent, from every culture, and of every color, whom Christ has purchased with his own blood for his eternal worship and the praise of God most high. The breadth and scope of the love of God. There's no words. It's amazing. Next, let's attempt by the grace of God to approach with some understanding this next dimension, the length of God's love. <laughs> I mean, I'm convinced, along with many others, that Paul wants his readers to think hard, to think intensely, or to intensely consider, to ponder deeply, to meditate intently with one's full effort and attention on these dimensions of God's love. In this next dimension, it completely stretches the mind, which I believe is exactly what Paul wants. The Apostle Paul wants these Christians and really all believers to exercise their spiritual minds, to regularly work this new mind we have, becoming more and more familiar, skillful, spiritually mature, with these, tree, or these truths and this new thinking. Believers are to exercise thinking biblically, thinking spiritually, musing on these lofty truths that will transform our earthly lives and cause us to live in the spirit the way God does. But to muse on these truths, you have to read right? Spend time in the Word. Spend time being influenced and taught, growing in the faith. God help us to be determined to exercise this mind that we have from God. Yeah. It's mind-bending, this next truth. Um, it's mind-bending because it's infinite. There's no beginning and there's no end. You know, red lights and alarms are going off in the human brain right now. Wait a minute, we, no beginning? I mean, that's, we, we understand beginnings and we understand endings. We do not grasp or comprehend infinite. I've used this quote by Gerhardus Vos many times. I'm going to ask you to please endure it one more time because it fits. His quote, The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. That's mind-bending. In that quote, he 
bases on Jeremiah 31.3, and I'm confident on many, many other verses in the Scripture. But Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, the length of the love of God. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Listen to these next verses regarding the length and duration of God's love. Psalm 103, 17 and 18, very familiar verses. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. That group, his loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting. And if you are in fact... um, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them, that evidences that you're rooted in the love of God. You're not earning anything. You're evidencing something. Does that make sense? Um, Isaiah 45, 17. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Wow. Isaiah 54, 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Wow. Does that warm your heart? It warms my heart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes this in verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you, through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, that's our destiny. On the day of glorification, I'm jumping ahead in my notes here, but... And then again, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and remember, Paul was really in a hole in the ground. He was in a prison toward the end of his life. And he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. I can just see Paul tucking Timothy under his arm, counseling him. Yeah. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The Bible's replete with this theme of the love of God, the length, the duration of God's love. And then in this dimension, final verse, um, the dimension of the length of God's love, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Verse 22, the glory, this is Jesus praying before he goes to the cross. 
His heart is exposed. He's pouring it out to the Father. So intimate. Father, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Catch that. You love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The same love. Did you catch that? O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. What is the length of God's love for us? In a word? It's eternal. It's infinite. That is, God help us, right, to grasp that when we're struggling. Struggling with faithlessness. Struggling with depression. Or whatever. Yeah, God not only, he not only knew us, but he recorded our names in his book before he created um, Revelation 13.8 it's kind of a dark verse for those who do not have their names written in his book but it tells us something all who dwell on the earth Revelation 13.8 will worship him small h the beast Everyone whose name has not, has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Yeah. So in light of these truths, these verses we've read, we can see just how important it is that we spend time, much time, in contemplation, thinking hard thinking often of this dimension of the length of God's love. It's a most glorious exercise which will lead us along with Paul the Apostle to this confident proclamation. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, you know them well. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know why Paul could make that confident assertion? He understood the length the breadth, the depth. <laughs> That's why he's writing to the Ephesian Christians. He understood it. God wants us to understand it. 
Are we confident this morning that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? The third dimension of the love of God is depth. Now, little note here. If you're reading the authorized version, and maybe the New King James, um, the next up in the sequence is height. Or no, is depth. It's the NASB and the ESV that has height, right? So they're out of order, or they're in order. <laughs> Depends on the Bible you're reading. But we're taking depth next. So to get a proper sense of this dimension, really, we, we, just must, we, we need to turn our attention to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. So if you turn over to Philippians 2, the depth of the love of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, speaking of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, the depth. Why this condescension? Why this extreme pouring out of himself? This emptying? Why a cruel crucifixion? Because of the depth of the love of God. That's why. God took extreme measures. Because of the extreme condition of those whom he loved. The depth of the love of God. He sent his son, his beloved son, to save sinners. How far will God go to save one that he has written down the name? And we were just talking about this earlier, but that name in the list, in the Lamb's Book of Life, is a covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God decreed. God made a choice. Wrote down a name, and Jesus came to earth with a list. We don't know that list, but he does. But he had to be poured out. Listen to our desperate condition. I mean, we went through this in Romans chapter 3 to get a sense of the depth of the love of God. Paul says in verse 10 of Romans 3, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, violent. Destruction and misery are in their path. In the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The depth of the love of God. We had no chance. 
Zero. This is the condition of every human. And this explains to those whom God loves, to us, the depth of his love. God sent his beloved son to save sinners, to rescue his own. He came on a rescue mission. Jesus said this in Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And that comes on the heels of um, the coin that was lost. Remember, it's mine, I gotta find it. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, his famous statement, um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He understood that Jesus came to save sinners. He came on a rescue mission and understood the depth. But there's still something else that needs to be considered as we're thinking about the depth of the love of God. We need to really understand what it means that when he came to save sinners, were we just like um, sterile, meaning we weren't really offensive to him, we were just sinners, we kind of missed the mark, but we're okay? We were enemies. We hated God. This is astounding. This gives us a pretty clear sense of the depth of his love. Romans 5, verse 6 For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. We were enemies, enemies, hating God, hating each other. We see those definitions and descriptors in Paul's letter to Titus and others. So, the breadth of God's love, the length of God's love, the depth of God's love, now we go to the height, the fourth and final dimension in Paul's letter. This dimension of the height of God's love seems to be the final, ultimate purpose of God for his precious people. And Paul wants his readers to be able to comprehend it. Most Christians tend to think of their salvation only in terms of being forgiven, as if Christ only purchased forgiveness for them. And that way of thinking falls woefully short in comprehending this dimension of the height of God's love for his people. Christ not only paid the penalty of our sin, He purchased our high position with himself. Christians are more than forgiven. We are children of God, sons of God, co-heirs of God, or heirs of God and, and joint heirs with Christ. That was purchased. That was bought for us. You know, Jesus died not only for our sins, that our sins be forgiven, He died that we might be good. He died to make us good, to make us righteous, to make us holy. 
You shall be holy, for I am holy. Why? Because God dwells in the high and holy place. So we have to be holy to dwell with God. That math is pretty easy. He also dwells with the broken, contrite, and humble. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <clears throat> Paul has already told these Ephesian saints of their high position in Christ, which points them to this dimension of the height of God's love. In, back in Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is verse 3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember, he bought our position. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He bought a position for us right now. Right now. Which will be well, we'll get there, but right now. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He bought our position. The love of God is high. It's high. We actually by his mercy and grace, as we turn our attention toward him, he lifts up our face, right? He's the glory and the lifter of our head. To look up. To see God. To enjoy God. We're too busy looking down, aren't we? God help us. And he does. That's why we're here. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Yeah, all God's precious people are in Christ positionally, seated in the heavenlies. And we are his body. We're the body of Christ. We are part of him. We're part of him. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, Paul says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We all get that just as Christ also does the church. That's what Jesus does for the church because we are members of his body. Jesus attends to us. He cares for us. He watches over us. He blesses us. He helps us because we belong to him. We're part of him. The height of God's love 
in Christ has not only raised up his loved ones spiritually, but also bodily. I kept kind of leaking into this part, but God's final and ultimate purpose to redeem his people, it's an entire, it's, he, he redeems us entirely. Spirit, soul, and body. We are redeemed. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Such a wonderful promise. Verse two, uh, 20. Paul tells these Philippian believers, our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You know, again, Paul wrote this from a, from a Roman prison. But he's reminding them, these believers and us, our citizenship is in heaven. This high position we will finally and forever realize at our glorification. It's imminent. It's absolute. We will see the face of God. We will gaze upon our Savior. We will be in a state of abject joy eternally. Isn't that something to kind of keep our minds on? Amen. First Corinthians 15, verse 48, Paul says this. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. He's talking about the federal heads. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who is that man? Adam. It's Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's that man? Jesus Christ. That's thrilling. And then John writes in his wonderful letter in 1 John, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Yeah. That's the evidence of faith. That's what a Christian does. We're not perfect. We're sinners. We're dragging around general sin. It's kind of strapped on our back. But he's not calling the shots anymore. Praise the Lord. Our captain, our king, Christ, he is the one who is the uh, one we serve.
Well, and of course, I'm going to reference one more time Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it makes it abundantly clear what God's final and ultimate purpose for his beloved people, that is, all of God's chosen, will one day be reunited with him. Reunited. That's an interesting mind-bending thought. That God knew us in eternity. He wrote our names down. Just because you didn't know him doesn't mean he didn't know you since he's omniscient. And Lloyd-Jones brought this to my attention in the study in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10. Because there's a, a little part of the phrasing there that gets left out in our translations. Again, Christ has come to bring back harmony with creation, with God's people and with creation. That's why creation's groaning, waiting for that day. Yeah. That is, um, all God's chosen people will be reunited with him in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in eternal glory, forever and ever, age without end. So John 17, verse 24, we've read it already, but Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is God's final, ultimate purpose for your life, to live with God to love God. And the world and the flesh and the devil, they're doing their level best to prevent that from happening right now. But our destiny is sure because of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. Brothers and sisters, have you been feeling spiritually weak? Feeling sad? Depressed, afraid, disappointed, hurt, anxious, doubtful? Are you down? Are you in despair? Listen, God has given us his healing balm. It's the balm of knowing his love. But have you realized the love of God? Do you know that God loves you? Have you considered God's final and ultimate purpose for your life lately? Have you been spending time with the lover of your soul? Have you given time to thinking long, thinking hard, and, and thinking deep on the love of God? Have you thought about these glorious dimensions, the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's amazing love? Church, this is the antidote, right? 
the healing balm, the comfort we all need and want, knowing and growing in the knowledge of the love of God is the solution for this godless, harmful, joyless way of thinking and existing. God did not intend for us to be depressed. We can, be, um, we can grieve over our sin, of course. We can grieve the loss of a loved one. But even in those moments, the love of God is our comfort. As God's beloved children, may we all know God's love. Grow in God's love. Rejoice in the love of God more and more until Jesus Christ returns to take us home. Pray. Father, how tender and kind of you to cause us to know who you are and to know your love this infinite love of God, wide, long, deep, and high. Lord, engage our hearts. Engage our hearts to appreciate your love and to pursue it, to pursue the knowledge of God through the word of God, by the spirit of God, and through the family of God. All graces from God. Cleanse us, Lord, of our sin, the sin of unbelief. And may we just bask in what has been afforded to us in our dear Lord. We commit the day to you. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.